Walking Through Glass, the podcast, the podcast where you are invited to ear hustle on an intimate conversation between real women as they discuss their journey, joys, and diva hacks. I am your host, Dr. Dina C. Brown, executive coach, international best-selling author, and bold woman walking through glass every day. Walking Through Glass is about the struggle we face on our journey, which I describe as walking through glass. Our conscious conversations are all about real talk with real women that are doing their best to navigate fear, anxiety, depression, imposter syndrome, limited beliefs, negative self-talk, and other BS, you know, belief systems. Welcome to the show. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Walking Through Glass, the podcast. Today is going to be another amazing episode of Race, Class, and Sisterhood. And today I have Natalie Newport, and I'm so excited to have this conscious conversation with Natalie. I got to tell y'all, when I read Natalie's bio, she said to me, I was like, okay, I can't wait to share this. So here it goes, guys and dolls, is that Natalie describes herself as a 29-year-old white woman who still needs to figure her shit out. (laughs) All right. How many of us resonate with that? Like, I'm raising my hand, and I'm a 48-year-old Black woman. And I love that. And she doesn't just mean doing her taxes without the assistance of TurboTax. She means holding herself and others accountable to learn more about white, straight, um, what is it? CIS, then privilege and being an intersectional feminist. Ooh, I can't wait to dive more into that part. She grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you can't convince her that our country hasn't been ignoring racial inequity for generations. I'm not even going to mention Trail of Tears. So currently Natalie lives in Pittsburgh and she moved her career and she's been working in the news. So she's going to give us a lot of tea on how to make some things happen as well. And with her starting in local news in Tulsa and moving to national news, I know that she is going to provide some powerful insights on how to begin to even really use our voice and how she's used her voice. She has been in the middle of protests before and after Trump was elected. And if she can help voices who are marginalized and disenfranchised, then she is, and she can, and she will, period. And that's her goal in life. And I'm so happy to have Miss Natalie Newport on the show today. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Do you ever like hear your bio? You've been like, yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's funny, like being like a writer or whatever, it's like sometimes it's so weird for me to write about myself. And so like, I always like to start off with like the TurboTax joke, you know, and then go into the serious stuff. But like hearing it out loud, I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. And I'm like agreeing with it. And then I realized like, girl, you wrote that. That's you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, but it's it's weird to hear things about myself. Because like, I'm I'm so used to like, 
writing about other people and making sure like their stories are heard. So it is, it's kind of, it's kind of different, but I like it. <laughs> I do. No, I do like it. And when you said the TurboTax, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that is so me. And how many of us now are sitting there thinking, do I have really simple taxes this year for mm-hmm. a whole host of other reasons? That's probably a whole nother show that I might do is that I'm like, okay, do I just want to do like TurboTax or do I want to go take it back to my accountant who, um, you know, for all purposes, I'm going to pay triple the amount when I know that it's really a couple buttons or is it even worth my time? Or do I just want, I've, i so when you, when I saw that, it just reminded me that, okay, girl, you need to make some decisions because you're <laughs> getting your notes from your accountant each day. And I'm talking about my simple, um, taxes and stuff. And I know I'm not getting any money back. So that's why. <laughs> oh man. I don't totally the part. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like, part of the whole like getting my shit together is I know something in particular that I am not good at and I don't know if I'll ever be good at and that is math and that is numbers. <laughs> oh. so, like it's like for me, um, like I'm like you, I, I have to have an accountant. I have to have TurboTax. I have to have something that's very simple for me because obviously I would like the money. I would like the money back, <laughs> but I don't know how to do it without major assistance. So yeah, well, I just know I'm not getting the money. Like, I already knew that. And if I knew I was getting money back, it wouldn't even be a question. But I'm like, okay, yeah, you know what? I mean, to the point where I even told my son, okay, I need you to go ahead and file on your own. I don't even need to claim you because I still got to pay. Like, anyway, why don't you go ahead and try to get your own coins? <laughs> because if I claim you, I'm still not getting anything back. And maybe you can on your own. So it's really been interesting. But, like, more importantly, I think that as we've said in our current, the best way I can describe it is turbulent times. Yeah. And I keep thinking about what our skill sets are and how we identify what we're great at and where we need some other work is really key. And that's why I think this discussion is going to shed some light for many who are out there saying that, okay, beyond taxes, how do I throw my scarf in the ring for social justice and social action? And how do I shift from being just aware of what's going on to actually taking action? And although we have this visual, and I know for many of my white friends and, you know, what we call allyship, I have interesting perspectives about even using that term. But anyway, for the course of us understanding that term (laughs) is used so much that people understand that part is that people are still going, you know, what do I have and how could I add and do a value add to really become active in this fight against, you know, racism. And I know that you have some very particular ideas and that you yourself are an avid activist in the space and not just right now because it became, you know, fashionable. So I wanted to open up the opportunity and the, the, the mic for you to share, you know, like what's some of the ways that you can use your skills and abilities or that you have even used yours to uplift the black community per se. And promote anti-racism, but also how have you been able to help yourself begin to embrace and process it so that you truly can be an authentic um, anti-racist? Yeah. So for me, um, so like I said, when I moved to Pittsburgh, I came here to work for for a national news team and I don't work in news anymore. So I'm completely able to talk freely about things because I know like a lot of journalists, you know, we're sort of we have to kind of keep separate from things that are going on in, in like the world and things like that. So we can kind of report about everything that's going on. But I would say for me, like something that's extremely important always, but in particular for, for everything that's going on is to stay educated. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. And for myself, like I know, like there's a lot of, there are a lot of things in the media that, you know, aren't always right. They don't always get it right. They don't always do, you know, the, the correct thing. They don't. And I know like even working in media, I know that that's there. And, but I would say like, try your best to find, I always say find three sources, find three sources to get your, 
to get your news. And I know that's difficult to do it every single day, but I would try. And I would try to find a source that's, you know, kind of a source that has one one opinion, a source that has another opinion, and a source that's just straight down the middle. And I would just sort of, you know, I think a, a great way to become aware about social issues like racial injustice is that if you if you're more aware and you're more educated by these things and you you kind of keep up to up to speed on all of it just in terms of the news, you just know what the conversation is. And then moving forward from that, you need to find people whether it's podcasts, whether it's, you know, uh, activists on social media and Instagram, you know, people in your community that are being at, like that are activists. You need to listen to them and find those people and basically, you know, just become extremely well educated in terms of also reading novels. And I wrote in a couple of novels that I think are great, but in particular, I also, maybe because I went to college for creative writing, I think it's important to read novels about, um, for white people to read novels about white privilege and learning about that and how, you know, racism has always been around. It's not just popping up now, you know, it's not just, it's not just magically appearing in 2020. Like it's been, it's never stopped. It's always been around. And I think like, while it's important to read novels and stories and uh, nonfiction books about white privilege and to educate yourself on that level, I think it's also important, however you consume, like whether it's television, movies, TV shows, uh, podcasts, like I said earlier, or novels, like I think it's important to watch these like stories that have been written by people in the black community and, and other like communities and LGBTQ communities. Um, because you understand like stories, you know, you can, you can listen to these stories, whether they're nonfiction or fiction and even understand and be able to empathize like other people's experiences, because that's, what's most important about this is that people, white people in particular, we need to step away from our own experience and we need to realize what's been going on to other people in, in the world. You know, like we need to know that's part of our privilege is to stop and, and realize, you know, that there is a whole other, there's a whole other range of experiences that people are going through. And if we don't understand and learn and educate ourselves about those and find out how we can, we can be better about making sure that everyone's on an equal playing field, then I think like, that's really a major part of understanding all this. And then I think, and being better about, like you said, being a, a genuine, authentic ally to the black community. And then I think another side of it, and this is something that especially during COVID, I've kind of noticed is that there are a lot of protests going around and protests going on in a lot of communities. And I think they're amazing and they're great. And I've my, myself in particular, especially now that I'm not in news, I've really wanted to go and join them. But like, I've had a lot of COVID anxiety. And so like, I've, you know, I found ones that were, were easy, you know, and, and made me feel comfortable. But then I also thought on the flip side, you know, even having a day job as well, like, on the flip side, like when I'm not able to make it, what can I do? What can I do to still help? And so I have found that like a lot of my friends and I, like we, we're going to take our skill sets and we're going to uplift the black community and we're going to help educate our white friends who, like you said, are, are newly woke to go, what's going on. Like we need to use our abilities in my terms, it would be writing and things like social media. And then like, I have a friend who's artist, like um, she is very like, she's great at painting. And so she's been making a lot of signs and like offering them up to businesses, you know, promoting Black Lives Matter and things like that. And it's just, you know, stuff like that, that I think is important to, to like help and be an activist. If you don't like, if you're scared of, you know, going out in public still because of COVID, like there's still things you can do from your home and there's still things that you can do to help people around you because, ultimately like that's the goal is to is like as a white person make sure that other white people in your circle or even in your follower group like make sure that you're helping educate them and like you're the one teaching them about how to be a better activist and how to promote you know black lives matter and how to uplift the black community like i think there's like a twofold there um but educating yourself and then using whatever skill set you might have um, and, and if that's protesting, if you feel comfortable, you know, that's also a great way to do it as well. But, you know, I also have friends that like they were saying, you know, they wanted to donate more, but they didn't necessarily have as much means to be able to donate as often as they could. And I thought, well, you know, 
there's other ways that you can do that if you don't necessarily have like, you know, the monetary uh, means to do that. Like you can, you can kind of stop and say like, well, what am I good at? What can I have? Like, you know, what can I have to offer to help educate people to being better allies to the black community? What can I have to educate myself to being a better ally? Um, and so that's sort of, to me, like right now, those are the sort of uh, two points that I felt like are, are really great starting points. That's like super, that's not even a starting point. That's like a whole content, a whole playbook. <laughs> and, and I say that because I've been doing a lot of conversation as the resident black spurt, a uh, phrase I begin to coin for black expert. Nice. Because <laughs> I have such a diverse community and I have such a diverse family. And when I say that, I tell people, if you're connected to me and, and if I call you my friend, then that means we're family. I don't use the term loosely. And so I'd rather you come to me and ask questions and go somewhere and get your feelings hurt, you know, and things like that. But also because what I do in the corporate and professional space, which is building teams and helping leaders really design comprehensive communications and leadership plans, right. I've been able to lend my voice. And I love what you said about you have to find what works for you. Yeah. And each time I've had this talk, and so now the first Tuesday of each month, the next being on July 7th, I have started the Racial Literacy for Leaders Roundtable. Nice. And so leaders can come there and have conversation. And I even decided that I wasn't going to record them because I wanted it to be a safe space. Right. And so I'm not recording what you've said. I'm not, I'm, this is a really, a really safe space for you to ask questions and, and kind of get clear about what your messaging is. You can bring in an expert like me to talk to your team, but as a leader it's truly impactful and empowering for you to be able to have the dialogue. And when we're talking to our friends and, and I actually, this is Dina speaking. I actually prefer to see people give the most expensive thing that they have, which is their time. Right. As opposed to, Oh, let me write a check. And that check is often a knee jerk reaction to guilt. And so in the recent class that I did from awareness to action, you know, developing your anti-racist action plan, what I told every single person in that class, I said, stop apologizing unless you did something. Stop. It doesn't do much for your psyche. I'm talking about your psychological and your mental well-being. And if something makes you feel bad and guilty, why would you want to continue to do it? It's psychologically impossible. <laughs> Right. For you to feel joy about doing something for the long haul that makes you feel bad. Therefore, stop feeling bad and start feeling empowered and actually identify what your giftedness is and say, wait a minute, this is how I want to serve and support. Not what somebody else said you should do, mm-hmm. but what you said. So I love how you said, what are my gifts and talents? How could I use them? How does it work best for me? How can I do this after the three days where fish and relatives actually have to go? You know, because this is a, this is a marathon. We're talking about institutionalized and a system. (laughs) And so I, so I love that. That's why I loved how you frame that. And, and I'm excited about what you've been able to share. And although it's really powerful to, you know, share and, and for other, what I call woke and aware and white people who've been doing the work to help educate their others. I love the other part that you said, go give multiple sources of information. And this is why when I wanted to be quiet and I wanted to sit back and I wanted to just kind of sit in my own process, I couldn't because people were going out, they're looking for information and the information they were finding. I thought that's not giving you context for conversation. Right. I I agree. So that's why I loved, like I said, I was like, wow, that was so powerful. So again, what did this birth me saying, once I see it, I can't unsee it. Once I know it, I can't unknow it. And I said, okay. So again, I went back to me and said, what are you going to do? Because you can talk about it or you can be about it. What can you do that aligns to who you are? Well, as an educator and who's taught American Negro slavery, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, I have a certain context. 
that I can help people frame their conversations. And so probably in the next couple of weeks, uh, my mom's like, did you start yet? Did you start yet? But I'm like, mom, let me kind of get some things and wrap my mind around it. So that again, is something that I can do without feeling like it's a burden. Mm-hmm. I'm starting a series called Context for Conversation. How did we get here? Because many people don't know why it wasn't taught in school. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. I think, you know, even even knowing, you know, growing up in Tulsa, like we were never taught about like I, I grew up in Tulsa and we were never taught in, in high school and middle school at any time. Like when we had Oklahoma education, we were never taught taught about like the Tulsa race massacre that occurred in our town in nineteen the nineteen twenties. So like I think that's a great I, I'm so glad that you're doing that because I think right now educators, you know, they have a responsibility to make sure that history is, is being taught, you know, in a way that isn't just benefiting a white community and just, you know, it, it tells the full st- true story. So that's amazing. And that's the hard part. And when I was a K-12 educator and a form, I'm a former school principal as well, is that when I taught middle school social studies and high school advanced contemporary issues, et cetera, I use the textbook as like a supplemental source. Right. That's <laughs> and we actually used real documents and we actually did additional research. And I think that all of my former middle school students who are listening, if they do, if you are listening, and definitely you want to weigh in, that they actually got <laughs> a real good view about what was really going on and not the whitewashed view. And I also though got in trouble when I was in the classroom, I got in trouble about that sometimes because not from my administration so much, but I had parents who were upset that I was actually teaching what I was teaching. And I thought, but this is real. These are real documents. Yeah. This is this is real stuff that's actually happening. And so it was like and I said but you're also welcome to come to class. You're welcome to come and learn too, but it was a slippery slope that educators have had. So when people have asked me, "Where do we start? Where do we start to begin to dismantle this institution?" And you have to think about the institution as a whole complete system yeah. and one massive building. And so you have to begin to demolish it brick by brick and rebuild it. And I think we really do need to look at how education, the institution of education plays a big part of that. Why? Because gosh, kids start there. Right. <laughs> I completely agree. And you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because I can, I know it's not education, but I know in news I can just I can't even count how many times on my hands people would call it about being frustrated that the facts about something, you know, weren't necessarily lined up or like, you know, in particular, like we had two officer involved shootings in Tulsa when I was working there, um, Terrence Crutcher and Eric Harris. And people just were like, it, it happened that, no, it can't have happened that way. It happened that way. That's, this is happening. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't. No, I, I, I can't. That's horrible. That wouldn't have. Ha- that's that's racist. That wouldn't happen. I'm like, yeah, it did. I'm like, it, it's happening. <laughs> like you need. And I like I've been so pleasantly surprised about people being more woken up to everything going on in 2020. But I just wish like I wish you you're right. Like I wish there was an education system that like because that's where it starts. And I wish these you know, this isn't something new. And so I wish that it had happened a lot earlier, but, um, I I think you're right. Like even talking with my sister, she's, she's an educator and she was just saying like, she, you know, she thinks that there's just so many things. And like you said, textbooks and stuff like that, that are definitely whitewashed. And that's like where a major part of all of this starts is, is through education. And I think that's a great place for people to start. And I, you know, I think, in terms of education, like I was saying earlier, the media also has a responsibility in all of this, 100%. Um, it's funny, people think that I have no issue criticizing my my profession, but I do. Like, nothing's perfect, you know? Like, it's like you said, it's a, it's a 
deeply ingrained system. Like it's a giant, massive, disgusting building that we need to start taking down brick by brick, basically. And I I was sitting there um, watching different things that are coming to light. And like I said, journalists have an amazing opportunity um, to share. And real, I say real reporters, <laughs> yeah. real journalists. And I can tell that you have that framing because the first thing you said is a method I also use with students when they had to write, because I was a former English teacher, is I call it the power of three. Make a point. Where's your three, you know, <laughs> what three sources did you go to minimum right? to help either support or even things that were antithetical to what you were saying that you can still kind of find and pull out whether either to, again, to um, address your point a little further. And so I, I've just really been going, okay, what to do next? What to do next? Because like you said, I've really been shocked by the shock of many people that this cannot be true. And when they throw and banter out things like, now I'm a woman of faith, hands down. But when they, when others say, well, let's look at religion. That's not, do you realize that probably one of the most segregated areas besides schools was religion and churches? Ask the question, why was the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, started? Because they were not permitted to worship in the Methodist church. Yeah. I mean, like, and so it's, it's when we say one nation under God, I know what that means as a woman of faith. But at the time, when we talk about how did we get here, you have to understand that Every aspect of human life was segregated and built upon the premise in America and many other places too, that blacks were inferior. They were subhuman. And why was that? Because in order to enslave them, I needed to prove to myself and my subconscious and my being that they weren't so that I could sleep at night. Exactly. That's what it is. They wanted to make themselves feel better about treating human beings as though they were not human beings. <laughs> That's, it's, yeah. I, I think I, I've like been sort of like looking, you know, on a lot of like Instagram and like social media and some activists that I follow and just, you know, all of them pointing out historically all these things that have just been taught in our systems and taught to people just to make, I mean, you know, that was like in the slave era, but it's like, there are still things going on to this day that are much more subtle, but are still trying to like push this ideology that like, you know, basically just all of these racist claims. And it's just, I think it, like you said, it is surprising that there's so many people that are just like shocked that it's still happening. But then when they look around and they see it, it's like taking your glasses off, you know, like you had rose colored glasses on, you take them off and you realize like, oh my gosh, this has been going on. You know, here's something here, here's something there. And it's like, you know, the more that you educate yourself, I think the more that you as like, at least as white people, like they start to see all of those things in our society that are still even happening today. Absolutely. Because you have to consider what was it built on. And that's really where a lot of my vocal, um, my vocality has been is about, it's not about right or wrong. Let's look at the facts. And so with those facts, I go, let's look at miscegenation laws. (laughs) And the fact that there's nine states still today that has miscegenation laws still on their books that were never taken off. And for those of you that are not familiar with miscegenation, it actually makes it illegal for you to marry, illegal to marry certain people. And particularly miscegenation is that separation of you. It was illegal to marry a black person. It was illegal for blacks to marry Asians. It was illegal for blacks to marry Malays. And then it was illegal for blacks to marry native Americans and so on. And then it became illegal 
for whites to marry Japanese, especially Japanese women after the war. And you say, oh, that was way slavery times. We're talking mm-hmm. in our lifetime, in our parents' lifetime, in the 1940s and the 1950s. Yeah, I think people forget that there are people who are still alive that remember, you know what I mean? Like that's, so it's it's not so far off as, as some people believe it to be. No, Brown versus Board of Education, you know, and I keep, I share, and this is one of my favorite books that I love to teach, which is called Warriors Don't Cry, Melba Batille Beale story. And it's that integration and part of that Little Rock Nine um, piece and telling, you know, her, her, in her life, she's still alive. You know what I mean? (laughs) She had to have, she had acid thrown at her in her eyes for wanting to go to school. I know. I mean, it's when you, when you, and this is, this is not something that is like, wow, you know, this couldn't have happened. And here's the point, right? Here's, here's the point. This is the, this is the, the interesting part. And people think that it was just a South, a Southern thing. No, it wasn't. But when you think about when, how long ago, again, I'm 48. I was born in 1972. And that, interracial marriage. And now we see it. And again, millennials see it like, Oh wait, I don't, I don't think anything about it, but, but it wasn't until the seventies that States like Mississippi legalized interracial marriage. Yeah, it, I agree. And you know, but it's funny that you say that. Cause like, I think even when was it, I was working in news for sure. Because this was something I worked mostly at, like I worked mostly in like social media, so things that would go viral. And I can't for the life of me remember what brand it was. I want to say Cheerios, but I don't know if that's correct. But they had it was it was going viral. Uh-huh. And I just remember my boss was like, "Okay, this is trending. Why, sh- you know, whatever brand this is trending?" And I go, "I don't know." And we were like, "Let's watch the commercial." So we mm-hmm. watched it. Adorable family. I think mm-hmm. they were, I think it was cheer- they were eating those cereals because it was about yeah. heart healthy. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Eating the food. So we watch it and I go, I, I'm very confused. And I was like, dare I, I always joked that I always said this, dare I read the comments? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Oh my gosh. People were up in arms because it was an interracial couple. And I mm-hmm. was like, wow. I, I guess because it's the, the internet and social media and I've worked too long in social media to see people say horrible things from behind a keyboard to not be so surprised that that was what they were up in arms about. But like, I use that to kind of show my friends who lived in their perfect little like bubbles that, you know, Hey, I know you think racism is over, but like, this is still happening. Look at this. And they would be like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's so horrible. I can't believe that happened. And then recently I know for sure it was target there was um, a black-owned brand within Target. I believe it was the beauty brand. Yes, it was a tampon brand for women. Mm-hmm. Yes, people were up in arms about that. And I was like, oh my gosh, look, like this is before everything that's going on right now. I think it was even before COVID. And I was just like, look, like this is very recent. And look at this, these attacks this poor woman is getting just because she has an amazing, you know, new health. Like, or did you say it was tampons? Tampon brand, like. I was like, this is like, clearly this is proof right now for those people that are so shocked that all these things are happening still. But yeah, like I, I don't know if it was working in news. And and like I said, we had two officer involved shootings and like seeing like our Facebook page comments. And like, I remember like telling my boss one time, I was like, you know, I, I, I need more help like mitigating these comments. Like I need I don't know if there's trolls or what's going on, but like, cause I would, we had like our page set up where like they obviously, if there were inappropriate words or like violence or something like that, it would take down the comment, but it was coming to like such, like one of our high schools, there's an amazing high school in Tulsa called Booker T. Washington. All my great friends went there and, um, like it's, it's a great school and they had a, a rally, a black lives matter rally after, um, one of the officer involved shootings. And they just like, basically had like a pep rally and we're just talking about it. And like, basically just saying like, you know, we support the black community. We want to say everyone, you know, in Tulsa, like we support you and we want to come in together and have these conversations. And it was such a great live stream event for just everyone in the community. And there were just so many comments, um, like people just, you know, saying 
saying just horrible things. And I just remember I told my boss, like, I need help mitigating, like deleting and, and hiding these comments. Like that's, it's just getting to that point. And, you know, like, I just think that was like a wake up call for not necessarily everyone in that newsroom. Cause I will say that newsroom was very diverse. And I, I want to also uplift like all the amazing black women that I met and who I consider family in that newsroom who taught me and like basically took me under their wing. And like, I would not be the journalist I was today if it wasn't for, for my friends in that newsroom. Um, they're amazing women. They're still amazing journalists to this day. Like most of them are working, most of them, their career, like zoomed off and I was not surprised at all. And I'm so proud of all of them, but like it, it was just, you know, seeing my community go through something like that. And even in Pittsburgh, you know, Antoine Rose, like I, like I mentioned in my bio, I, I was working in national news. And so I didn't necessarily have like the local view of what was going on. And I, I will admit, I don't, obviously I didn't grow up in Pittsburgh, so I don't know the Pittsburgh community on a, on a local news level as I do Tulsa. And so I went to actually go let my dog out on my lunch break. And it was just me and another uh, a video editor. And I went on the highway. It's called the, I think it's called the uh, 376. And I just came back and people, like there was a protest going on and there it was very peaceful, but they had made their way into the highway and they shut down the highway. And so like, I obviously, I had a huge Tahoe at the time, like a very big car. And I was thankful because like, I'd never seen something like these were all young people and so strong and so brave. And I just, I stopped in front of them and I almost considered like even like parking my car sideways because I was scared like on a highway, you know, but they effectively shut down that entire highway. And so I just got up, I had a sunroof, I opened up my sunroof, sat up on my car and because I was working in news, I couldn't join them. But I told them that and I said, you know, I work in national news, so can I just film you? And they were like, yeah. So I just started filming them. I just started, you know, sharing their story and I shared it in Tulsa too. And it, you know, I think, I think if more people see things like that and see live streams from like actually talking and stopping and talking to people like within the protests and, you know, seeing their pain and seeing like everything that they've gone through, I think, I think that's also important. Like, I think even if you don't necessarily feel comfortable going to a protest, I know a lot of local groups here in Pittsburgh, especially like they will, people within the protest will live stream and kind of, you know, you know, even if they're not necessarily journalists, they are because they're sharing other people's story and like what's going on and doing it outside of the confines of like, you know, a newscast, a two minute newscast or a news, news story. And so, um, I think that's important too, is to like, you know, get that unpackaged version of the news and what's going on as well. You know what I mean? I love that. Technology has actually made every single individual with a smartphone, (laughs) a journalist pretty much. Yeah. And that's how we've captured lots of news. But I wanted to ask you, what has been your biggest aha awakening moment? And how has that impacted what you were currently doing to really set the course for how you want to engage? Man, that's a good question. I think, um, I would say for me, like probably my biggest, like, you mean like my aha moment in terms of like realizing you know, the the racial injustice that's still going on and things like that. Is that what you sort of mean? That everything, because to me, you can't separate your life from your leadership. (laughs) I'm a firm believer. And if we're trying to compartmentalize our lives and say, this part of me is a social activist, this part of me is a girlfriend, this part of me is an employee, this part of me, that fractures what leads to our mental psychosis. And so you can actually (laughs) respond and anyway, what have you learned about yourself? Yeah, I recently that's just been such an aha for you. Yeah, I think I think for me something that's been an aha is that you know I I obviously working in local news like and in national news just like seeing and telling other people's stories like 
I wouldn't say that it's like my main aha moment that I realized like there was major racial injustice. Like, you know, I, I definitely grew up in a, a state where that is still very prevalent. And, but I would say that like, I, something I've learned about myself in particular is that I'm a very analytical person. And so like, I think ever like since I've like learning all of these stories and hearing everyone's, you know, point of view. And like I said earlier, like hearing the pain and like knowing certain things that affect people and even like small, like microaggressions that like anyone can make on a daily basis. Like I think even myself, I, I've become, I've become more conscious of like, you know, listening, you know, any actions that I might take or friends might take, or like even just around myself and thinking like, you know, kind of thinking more about it and realizing, you know, why, you know, like we were talking about earlier, why certain things are set up certain ways and thinking, okay, well, you know, I may have not considered that earlier, but that's wrong. Like why, you know, in particular the education system, like we were talking, I don't, I don't have too many friends that are uh, teachers, but the ones that I have, like even just hearing them say like, you know, we were never encouraged to teach things a certain way, or we were never encouraged to, you know, had, like it was always just from the textbooks and the textbooks were written this way. But then I also think like, I, I, I would just say like overall, what I've learned about myself is that I, I definitely kind of see things, like I said, in a very analytical way. And I think I'm starting to make sure that like, I, I see things in an analytical way and like what I can do to help, but then also realize that like, there's, yeah, there are steps you can take to help this, like what's going on and steps you can take, you know, you can make a to-do list, but there's also emotion behind what's happening. And there's emotion from my friends and people I consider family who are being affected by this. And I think even just with COVID in, in general as well, I've, I've also tried to really hard to like touch base with my friends who might be, you know, my friends who might be greatly affected by this and, and just sort of talk with them, you know, talk with them about their lives, tell them how much I appreciate them, tell them, tell them, you know, like basically just kind of talk with them and then understand like, you know, what's like, what's going on from, from their point of view. And, you know, even just ways I can help as a friend, ways I can uplift them as a friend, you know, just as someone like I love them, they're great people. And, and so I think for me, like, something I've learned is like an aha moment is, you know, yes, have that to-do list and be very analytical, but also stop and like, you know, touch, touch base with, with my, my friends in the black community and make sure that, you know, they're okay. And, you know, this is a rough time in a lot of different areas. That, I mean, wow. (laughs) What a powerful, what a powerful journey. (laughs) (laughs) that you've been on. And I say that with such joy because at the heart of everything, it's what we find out about ourselves in the midst of this. That is the most powerful catalyst for what we are becoming and how we can create impact for the long haul. And I just... um, I just, I'm, I'm so in awe of those that have taken the time to sit in. And I tell people, please just sit in your thoughts. Right. Before you call me, just sit in it because it's that uncomfortable space, that queasy space for you. Yes. That is probably the most powerful space for you to begin to figure out your shit out. I, like what you're saying. I agree. And you know, <laughs> I will say, of course, this just popped into my mind now, but I will say even like now, like not working in news, I will say something that's kind of been like, not necessarily an uncomfortable spot, but like all of my, like I've had some friends that, you know, are saying Black, Live Ma- Black Lives Matter for the first time and like, you know, talking about it and being very open about it and saying like they're wanting to be educated. And I I will say like, I always kind of, you know, worry I'm not going to, you know, 
help them in the right way or show them the right link. Cause again, that's my analytical mind. Like I walk away and I'm like, well, I could have given them like three other book ideas that probably would have been better. And then I'm just like texting through the night. And I do that with like everything, but I will say like, I think something that is also important for those of us who, you know, everything that's going on right now isn't new. Like we know this has been going on for forever and we're, you know, we're, we're pleasantly surprised that uh, so many people are finally, you know, standing up against this and realizing that it's not just like some political issue. It's a humanity issue. It's something we, we need to fix. But I think like something for white ally people that want to be genuine white allies is that you need to reach out to your other white friends and they're those that are open to being educated and help them. Like you need to help them understand, you know, it's our responsibility to educate each other and help each other realize our own white privilege and be better about it and, and find ways, you know, on that journey, like we were talking earlier of, okay, well, do you want to protest? Maybe you're scared because of COVID. Okay. What else can you do? You know, keep going. Um, mm-hmm. and, and not just make it some viral moment. Like that's something I'm, I'm, I am kind of worried about as someone who's worked in social media that I, I don't want this to just be like, you know, we were sitting a board at home. And so we all started posting about this. Like, I think that's something that people, people that consider themselves white allies, they have, we, we all have a responsibility to sort of stand up and talk to those friends who are even somewhat interested in it. You know, someone ex, like ex, basically somewhat saying even the tiniest of bit showing interest in, in wanting to help the black community and fight racial injustice and be anti-racist. Like we need to reach out to them and say, you know, Hey, I, I saw you post, a, B, or C, like, if you ever want to talk about that, like, you know, here's some things that I've read that have helped me. Um, you know, I, I think that's important for people that consider themselves to be white allies to to do right now, especially. Absolutely. And not only do right now, and what you said is that people are home because of COVID, which it was the, the right ingredients for a perfect storm, I guess. Um, people have said, well, why now? And I said, well, it was the, it was timing is everything, right? but how do you lo- use that? But I also am convinced that it's the millennial generation that was born for this. They have always been human rights activists since the time they wanted to save the worm and the butterfly and the caterpillar on the curb. <laughs> and they say, and just think about it. When you, the one thing that corporate corporations have complained about is that millennials penchant for causes, right? Very true. (laughs) They will quit a job if you won't let them go support their friends. They'll quit a job if they thought that you were sourcing from, you know, toxic um, situations for using child labor, you know, in India. Yeah. They will, it, it is the right time. It could only happen right now. These things come in waves. And so I was sharing with someone, I said, you know, this is truly is a marathon. And if you've heard the series, you've heard me use this analogy a lot. And I do continue because if you miss an episode, you're going to get it every episode (laughs) (laughs) is that we are running a marathon relay. And one of the most critical elements of a relay is how you pass the baton. That is so true. And that each person in the race has a specific function based upon their skill sets and their abilities. The fastest go out first. Okay. And then what brings up the rear is also those that have speed, but also strategy to bring it up. So you have your fastest in the beginning and you have your fastest in the end. And in the middle, depending on the relay, who can best run the hills? Who can actually, you know, do those stretches? Who's ready to stand the gap can really sustain this in the hard spots? Because not the four by four, the four, you know, the four by eight, which are quick races. This is a long one. So that's why some of some people, it's okay, sit out, get clear right, about who you are and what skills that you can value add and what part of the race is best suited for your skills and ability so you can be confident on how you show up and how you serve. And that'll allow you to consistently stay in it. 
And I think that when we think about millennials who are the ones who are out there with that fearlessness to champion and they get triggered and they're going to be out there on the streets. They're going to be in somebody's face. They're going to be using social media. And what's really powerful about Generation Next, which I call Generation Z, is that they are a beautiful combination of millennials, boomers, and Generation X. Because many often were raised by their grandparents because <laughs> their parents still live with them. Right. And so they have this, and they have business savvy. They're more entrepreneurial. I see more multimillionaires with kids under 15 than I've ever seen in my life. That is so true. And you know, it's, it's, first I want to say it's funny that you said, like, I love a good analogy and the marathon analogy it's funny that you were talking about like passing the torch. I was just watching um, Mrs. America on Hulu, which is about like the ERA and, and, and that whole journey. But there was the National Women's Conference where they literally had women running to Houston and they had like a symbolic torch that was like lit and they would run, pass it to the next person and keep going. And so it was like that was how they lit the torch to start the conference and like the opening ceremonies and stuff like that. They would pass it on and like the fast, you know, like you were saying, like the fastest woman was the first and then she would pass it to the next person. And then by the time they got to like the arena, there was like a whole bunch of women and they all just like lit the ceremonial, uh, basically starting like the, the whole conference. And I thought that was really cool. But then I also wanted to say that I agree with you about millennials, but I also agree with you. I heard someone refer to them as Zoomers. And so I I don't know if that's correct, but it's funny the way you explain them because that generation, I will say like anytime I've been out and about and like covered protests and things like that, oh man, they're out in front, they're young and they're educated and they are powerful. And I'm just like, I think a lot of millennials, we feel that we're like, I'm in awe of you, you know, kind of like the Wayne's world, like I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Like they're, they're pretty cool. Like I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud of that, that generation. Like, you know, I consider myself millennial and I love us as well. And I think like, you're right, we have done so many great things, but even just kind of working in news, I've noticed that the zoomers as some have called them, like they are, man, they are a force to be reckoned with for sure. Absolutely. And it's interesting. And I have a special place in my heart um, for millennials. And people say, when I first um, transitioned from K-12 and I started doing a lot of corporate consulting, I got the nickname, the millennial whisperer. (laughs) And it was because they go, how do you get them to do things? I say, I listen, (laughs) but you have to understand our unique relationship. The millennials of today were my students of yesterday. I raised them. Right. I know them. Right. (laughs) They were my first babies before I even had a child, before I became a mother. Those are my kids. Yeah. (laughs) And so I know my kids. Right. You have a good, like you have a, it seems like you have a very strong connection to them. And I think that's amazing. But I'm glad that they were there to, to listen to you. And they do. And so when, and the reason why I was such a firm advocate with them in leadership space, because my kids were calling me once they're mine, they're mine forever. And they were calling me and they're like, okay, doctor, I don't understand. And they're like, I'm trying to do this. You taught us this. And I'm struggling in the corporate space in the workspace of trying to find mentorship and support. And so I started creating programming and again, the tutelage and the mentorship for them on how to navigate leadership. And so, because one of the things, if you were one of my students is that you are a leader and the first person you're charged to lead is yourself. Right. Period. And everybody has a choice, good, bad, or indifferent. It's still a choice. And so you'll own it. You might not like it, but you still got to own it. And so we've had these great conversations. And so when I started, like I said, being brought in to consult leaders on how to develop millennial leaders, it was like, oh, these are my kids. I, I got this. <laughs> I know them, yeah. and I and, and and I love them. And so I said, if you understand this part, and this is a human factor, but more so with millennials and even Generation Next, is that when they know that you love them and you care about them, you can have conscious and also con- for controversial conversations with them. Because they know you do it from a place of love, but it's all about building relationship. 
Yeah. It's a build relationship first. Right. You know, and so I look at all of what's happening now about who's leading the charge, who's tapping in, who's beginning to, you know, um, access the resource the fastest, who's going to be in it for the long game, who's keeping the embers burning, because it's not about lighting the fire, is can you sustain it through the night? Yes, exactly. So I've, I've been really, like I said, I've been sitting in that and, and certain things that I've wanted to share, I've held a little bit and I not only just kind of curating a little bit more, but I know that my part of the race and the passing of the baton is not necessarily to be there in the front. It's to hold the line. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's important for a, like a lot of people to remember is like that we need to you know, take that torch and, and start, you know, making sure that we're playing our part as well. And that's, and that's the part where I had to get clear because people were like, Oh my gosh, Dina, you should do this. No, I Dina needs to do what Dina knows she should do. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> Thank right. you. Right. And I'm very clear about that. And so I did go and do a March and took my son cause it was important. He's right. 18 and this hits differently for me as a mom. I'm just telling you, my God, it hits differently. I'm sure. Um, and so I'm not, I mean, I went to the Million Man March way back in the 90s and the, you know, Million Women, I've done those before and I've been in the space and I love the energy of the space, but that's not a space where I'm like, wow, let's greet, let's go to the protest in the march. That's not a natural inclination of what I want to do. Or to be honest with you, a best use of my gifts. That's a good point. I'm a storyteller. I'm a speaker. I'm an educator. And so- that's where my gifts are best used. And so I went because I wanted to be, and I knew that day I needed to be there and it was powerful because I needed fuel. Uh, My oil lamp was running low. And so when I decided to go, and I didn't realize that it was one of the largest in LA because it was over 20,000 strong. I was in the front. I didn't know there was 20,000 people behind me. And I needed that fuel and the energy and the love, but also the hurt and the confusion and all of that took its toll on me as well. Cause I can feel it empathically. I can feel it. And so I said, okay, this is the catalyst that I needed to go out again, to use my voice. And the last time I actually got a chance to speak maybe a week or two ago. Um, and it was great to share a stage with pastor Rick Warren and other great individuals in orange County, California yeah. about really bridging the gap about, I spoke to the ABCs of really looking at the institution of racism as it pertains to education. I love a good play on words. (laughs) I was an English major, so I I like all your English. (laughs) I love that. I love a good play on words. Mm -hmm. And so I realized as an orator, I have a unique opportunity to provide context with clarity to up-level a consciousness that's needed for people to communicate on a whole nother level. And so I said, okay, well, guess what? Get your stuff together, get your shit together, basically, (laughs) and and begin to share, but make sure it's aligned because what I didn't get to talk about, and I know we've talked about the gamut and you've talked about what it is for people to begin to not only uplift the black community, whether you're white, black, Puerto Rican or Haitian, but what we can't ignore is the mental toll that it takes on us. And I say us by being a black woman, being a black mother. And so I had to be clear about what my value add was going to be because I'm also grieving. And to be truthful, I'm still grieving for Emmett Till. You know, Eric Gardner, so many others. And so when I'm triggered in so many various ways, I have to also be mindful of my mindset. And I actually have to be mindful of, again, how do I still sustain myself so that I could actually be a part of the solution for the long haul? So I wanted to make sure that I shared that part is that when you are out there and, and making some decisions on how to use your skills and abilities to uplift that you don't forget about yourself. And that self-care is the biggest gift that you can do and give for the long game. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like, you know, 
when I hear my friends say that, like, that's when I say, pass me that torch. I got your back. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh my gosh. I have another layer to add to the analogy is that when you feel that you're running out of steam, you pass the torch and you pick back up the race after you've refueled. It's almost like I love, um, Formula One racing, and I love yeah. <laughs> I love racing. And so, when you think about when you have to pull in for a pit, stop to change your tires, yep. do some shit, you know, and do all those things, refuel. Yeah, and before you can get back out there. Yeah, and I think that's definitely like what feminism is all about. And you know, it's funny. Like, I, I, I have a hate love relate or relationship with the term intersectional feminist because feminism means that everyone is included. So it's a little like to say that, you know, have to clarify that you're in, no, if you're not including everyone, then you are not a feminist. So, but I, I think like, it's important to remember, like the terminology intersectional feminist is important to remember to remind people that like, that is what feminism is, is passing the torch. Like, just like I was saying earlier, like with the national women's conference, like that's what it is, is making sure you see, you know, your sister and she's down and, you know, whatever, you know, analogy or metaphor that means. And you need to say like, I got you, I got your back. Um, what do you need me to do? I mean, let's do it. <laughs> I love that. Um, thank you. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I forgot to ask her about yeah. explaining that piece because right now, um, my core work and what I'm working on is truly looking at reframing imposter syndrome and its intersectionality with race, class and trauma. Mm-hmm. And in this fight, in this journey that we're on, in this path for social justice, I don't want to ignore that there's also layers to that that applies to women, yeah, Black women, other minority ethnic groups, and white women. And so the study that I'm working on and submitting for IRB, because it's actually academic research, is how does it look? What What is it? Right. Is it truly imposter syndrome? Or is it masking? Or is it so many other things? And, that, and how does trauma impact that? How do relationships impact that? And all of that boils back down to the institutions in which we've lived and loved and learned. Right. So all of this that we are, we've covered, gosh, we've covered race, class, and sisterhood, right? Um, <laughs> is that, is that um, there, there's so much more, um, like I said, to, to even talk to. And I feel like when I launched this series, I didn't know, I knew I, I needed to use my platform right. to further the conversation. And I wanted to make sure that it was open to everybody and everybody felt welcome women. Let me, let me, women. <laughs> Cause that men going, can I do it? No, nope. I want to have a conversation with my sisters. Right. <laughs> How are you feeling sister? <laughs> this is about my sisters only. Right. And, and in doing that to begin to heal and lessen some of the gaps that we feel, the questions that we have and the things that we want to talk about, but we don't necessarily feel safe to talk about even within our own networks and groups and say that, Hey, I'm here. Let's talk about it. And let's, let's really begin to set the stage and the tone of the dialogue that needs to be happening in rooms and and cafes and shops around the globe. And so I said, I want to do this. And it's something that I thought I was actually going to do for like a week or two weeks and just kind of share it out there. It's become my favorite. And I decided to make it a permanent part of my podcast series. See, I think that's so important because, you know, in particular, like the feminist group, it's like, we have to make sure that we're uplifting everyone's voices and making sure that everyone is included because that is what feminism is. And I think it's important you know, for sisterhood to remember that and and to remember that, you know, we're all equal and we need to remember that. And I, I love that. I think that's a great, a great platform that you've created. Well, thank you so much for adding any final thoughts that we didn't, and we covered so much. I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, Any final thoughts that you want to share in closing? Um, I would just say, you know, even though I know, like, like I said earlier, this isn't necessarily like, I don't, 
I don't qualify things like this a political issue because I think they're a humanity issue, but they are unfortunately still being decided on by like voting. So I would just say, make sure, you know, anyone that's listening, make sure that you're registered to vote and then make sure that you're listening, even your local voting, like your little local voting elections, like what's going on, things that are being passed, things that are being proposed that might possibly uh, have some, you know, maybe have some racial undertones or ways that you can make sure that your local, uh, like your, your local officials are promoting, you know, making sure that everything around you is anti-racist and that you're working actively to do that. So I would just say, you know, look to your leaders in your community, um, even if they're not necessarily in office, but people that are being outspoken and activists for Black Lives Matter. Like I know, in Tulsa, there's a, a great guy that's actually my age and he's amazing. His name is Greg Robinson and he's running for mayor in Tulsa. And, you know, it just shows you that you can never be, you know, being a certain age doesn't matter. Like you just need to get your voice out there and make sure that you're uplifting our friends and family in the black community and making sure that everyone knows that black lives matter and that it reflects in our local governments as well as our national government. Thank you so much, Natalie. And I'm sitting there thinking, Natalie's going to have to come back. And we're going to have to do a part two. There's still even like so much more to talk about. And I know we've been talking for an hour. But I'm like, oh my gosh, there's still so much more. And so know, Natalie, that you have an open invitation Thank to you. come back and just share. Like I said, there's so much more. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, there's even like other things that I would love to just even, you know, piggyback on, but I'm not going to just throw that out <laughs> at her in the middle of the show. But thank you so much. And yeah. thank every single listener for listening and more than that sharing. And I want to make sure that I go on record to say that the best place, if you're sharing, please leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts because the analytics actually shows that the most listeners come from Apple Podcasts and Podbean. But if we want to begin to build traction, <laughs> if we want again, because these are amazing conversations that we want to make sure that are shared and that more people get to see and hear and know about it is definitely leave, of course, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever listening platform that you enjoy, but more importantly, listen, download, and share. We're nearly, we're nearing the 5,000 download mark. And I'd love to hit that in the next month before the end of July. And so I thank you, Natalie, for being an integral part of really advancing the voices of those of us who really are looking to be um, part of the solution to what ills are currently existing in America today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate this. You have an amazing platform and I'm, I'm so thankful I get to be a part of it today. All right. Well, there you guys have it. Until next time, it's been great helping you walk through the glass. Bye-bye.